and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over 10 years of experience. And this is Trisha, and today's killer was definitely not Molly Coddled in his youth. Molly Coddled, I feel like I've heard that phrase before. Well, it's like a terminology about a guy who's used to being coddled or pampered. Oh, that makes sense. And this one did not have that happen to him when he was little. Definitely not. Yeah. So, hey, Courtney, it is the new year. It is the new year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I didn't get to see you on New Year's Eve. Did you do anything fun? Um, Just kept it pretty low-key. It's my my partner's birthday is New Year's Eve, so we just kind of stayed at home and celebrated him. Did you go out to dinner or make dinner or anything like that? Um, I made dinner, baked him some birthday cookies, and then we just kind of hung out. Sweet. Yeah. Well... I was kind of like the DD this year, mm. um, which is the first for me, but I decided it's, you know, it's my turn. So we mostly stayed at home, but we did hit like a couple places around town and then, uh, but bring it in at home with some friends down from Portland area or up. Yeah, no, they came down. Sounds fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that is going to lead me into our question. Did you make a resolution? Mm, kind of. What was it? So my resolution is really this year wanting to be like very intentional about the, the choices that I make. Meaning like you're not letting fate happen to you? You're going to make shit happen for you? That's part of it, but also just less... Um, just like acting on impulse. Okay. I think I'm not like a super impulsive person when it comes to like big things, Mm -hmm. but even recognizing that some of those like small decisions, if I thought about them a little bit more mindfully could lead to better things. Yeah. I'm an impulsive person too. So, um, more so than you, but, um, so I understand like to take the time to make that decision. Right. I yeah. lost the word I was looking for. Well, that's not, I don't know, it's kind of like mine. Mine's more, um, I just try not, I'm going to try not to procrastinate so much. That's a good one. Because, you know, you always get that fire lit under your ass and you're like, well, I work best under pressure and stuff like that. But that might just be an excuse. It might be. So, you know, I don't like anxiety. So one way I could avoid having that is, you know, by not putting shit off. That's true, yeah. Because it's going to be the same shit, just a different day. So you might as well just do it. Right now. I don't know. but So that's what I'm going to try to do. Nothing exciting. I think non-exciting resolutions are probably the best because they are the most likely to actually be stuck to. Okay, sounds good. Well, good luck on yours. Thank you. Same. Okay. Well, we... Um, are starting a new killer this week. We uh, it was a one and done last week on the starvation doctor, Doctor Linda Hazard, doctor in quotation marks. Right, since she never actually went to any sort of medical school. Yeah, um, and that was really interesting. I wish that there was more detail on her, but since it's so old, yeah, that's right. How it, how it goes. So exactly. Um, my clue last week was that 20% of this type of serial killer makes up the serial killer population, at least in the United States. And that percentage is those that are African-American or black. 
Um, and so that's like a fifth of the serial killers in the U.S. that are African-American or black. And, you know, I really couldn't tell you the name of a serial killer in that population. They, do you, can you think of one besides the guy we're doing um, off the top of your head? Um, I've definitely heard of a few. I have one literally that I'm picturing his face and cannot remember his name this very second. But, but it, they don't usually... Samuel Little, that's okay. who it is, yes. But so yeah, you, not very many. Yeah, you had to like <laughs> rack your brain for that. Um, it's like they don't make headlines. And I'm not going to go all political or anything. As this, you know, That's not what this podcast is about. But I was surprised when I read that statistic and that I couldn't think of any that I had heard of. And um, they point out that during this serial killer's trial, which we will eventually get into, he got very little coverage because at the same time, the Casey Anthony trial was occurring. And, you know, she was young and pretty and white and her alleged crimes were horrible, you know, but Anthony was a serial killer. Um, and I doubt very few people outside of Ohio knew of his crimes. What do you think, Courtney? So I've I'd heard of this case before, um, but probably only because I'm sort of obsessed with true crime and have watched like all the shows. Um but I think that you're right about there being a lack of attention given to crimes involving people of color, both as perpetrators and as victims. You know, something that's important to consider is that most serial killers do kill victims um, of their own race. They don't tend to stray outside of their race. So our well-known white killers are killing other white people, mostly mm -hmm. women. And, you know, lesser known killers of color are killing other people of color. And there is, unfortunately, a well-documented problem with the media outlets just under-reporting crimes against black women and other people of color. Yeah, I believe that. Um, and I just want to say the book that we're using for today's um, case is called Nobody's Women, The Crimes and Victims of Anthony Sowell, the Cleveland Serial Killer or Cleveland Strangler, which is what he'll be known as. And it's by Steve Miller. Um, I'm not... I'm assuming not the Steve Miller of the Steve Miller band, but probably Steve not. Miller. So with that, I will start up. Anthony Sowell was born on August 19th, 1959 to Thomas Sowell Sr. and Claudia Garrison in East Cleveland, Ohio. His parents were not married, but that was not uncommon in the area where they lived. Thomas was a heavy drinker and got around with the women in the neighborhood. So basically, Anthony may have had many more siblings than he knew of. Thomas Sr. was in and out of prison for a lot of Anthony's childhood. He was a robber of safes, and he wrote forged checks. All in all, Thomas married three women and had many children. He never married Claudia, um, but in 1972, he finally settled with a much younger woman named Sigurna Henderson and eventually inherited a giant house from his father on Imperial Avenue in East Cleveland. He was still constantly in and out of prison, not typically for violent offenses, but he was gone enough that Anthony never really had a paternal role model. Courtney, we see this at work. Lots of kids in our area who have parents that are incarcerated. Can you tell us what that can do to a child? Maybe, you know, what's starting to happen to Anthony? So having a parent who's in and out of prison can create a lot of instability and confusion for a child. You know, generally speaking, being in and out of a child's life for any reason interrupts, you know, the creation of a secure attachment between parent and child. 
And we haven't talked about attachment for a little while. Um, So just a quick reminder, when a child doesn't have a secure attachment with a parent figure, it can lead to difficulty trusting others or forming healthy relationships kind of in the future. Um, And then additionally, you can add on sort of the mixed messages and feelings about things like criminal activity and substance abuse having a parent that's incarcerated. You know, on the one hand, a child loves their parent and is looking to them to be a role model. And on the other hand, they are taught that prison is where, you know, quote, bad guys go when they've done something wrong. And it can be very confusing to try and process those two beliefs that I can love this person and also that he's a bad guy. So in um, the population we serve and in the population that Anthony's from, um, there are lots of kids with with parents in prison. Um, I, it's just not something that I grew up with. So it's hard for me to um, put myself in that the position of a child who's one of their main parental figures is gone in a place where you're taught that it's bad. So I get what you're saying. And that's very confusing. Um, right. And I right. wonder if it like skews right from an early age, their perception of good versus bad society wise. I think it certainly can, especially, you know, in a, you know, section of society where that's maybe really normal, Mm -hmm. right? If it's, you just sort of expect that everyone's going to go to jail someday. Yeah. So being in jail is not something to be thought of as like this terrible thing. Yeah. Anthony did have some much older brothers who attempted to do some things with their young siblings, but it really wasn't much of a filler as they had their own lives and families and and they really didn't take Anthony under their care. So now let's talk about Anthony's mom. She had four children and none of the fathers would take responsibility. To be fair, it sounds like Anthony's dad was always in jail, so who knows if he would have liked to have been a father, just didn't get the opportunity. She did um, what she could, but money was always in short supply. She was on welfare and received food stamps and other types of government assistance. The family moved around a lot from house to house, just trying to find somewhere decent to live. Anthony changed schools a lot as well, and he just didn't do very well. He was definitely a latchkey kid. Now, one of Anthony's sisters by Claudia was a sickly girl who, by the age of 18, had five children. Anthony's grandma, Irene, also lived with this family. So basically, it was a ton of kids, a grandma, a mother, an older sister, and all of those kids. The family had a myriad of birth defects, mental illness, and epilepsy. Um, Courtney, can you tell us some things that may occur with this type of family dynamic? The dynamic. Sorry. Yeah, so chaotic and disruptive are the two words that immediately come to mind. You know, constantly moving, changing schools, having other people in and out of his life would likely have had, you know, a big impact on Anthony. It would be difficult to form strong and lasting relationships with friends or other safe adults like teachers, for example, you know, if you're only with them for a short period of time. It could also have been difficult when, you know, there's many families who may have been struggling with different physical and mental health problems that could just make things at home really unpredictable. So it would be challenging for Anthony to focus on things like doing well in school or building good emotional regulation skills if he isn't even feeling safe and secure and that his basic needs are being met. Right. And like, you know, kids like attention and if there's that many running around you're gonna get very little personal attention 
So right, exactly. So you might feel sort of ignored, and mm-hmm. I would, anyways. But or uh, it'd be easy for, you know, if he was having his own struggles, for that to kind of slip through the cracks sure. and not be, yeah. not be taken care of. Definitely. So there's a, a trigger warning here. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about um, a little bit of sexual child abuse. So. Just to let you know. To make things even more chaotic, there was also, like I said, a lot of abuse going on in the house. Anthony recalled a day when one of the older boys, his nephew, by way of his sister, Patricia, and her five kids, um, was forcing his sister to do things that she didn't want to do. Quote, he took her in the closet and he was like having lots of, uh, there was a lot of sexual activity going on in there. This was happening at my sister's house, and he basically, being the oldest, he was, like, directing everybody to do what you don't want to do, but I remember how he took her into the closet. Anthony also will claim that this same um, nephew of his that was older <laughs> molested him as well. So, Courtney, why would a child force himself on his siblings or family members? Now, I know this is an uncomfortable topic, but it does happen. What do you think happened to the perpetrator to cause this behavior when they are themselves children? So, children who sexually assault other children almost always have been abused themselves. You know, in families, this is called kind of generational trauma when there is a history of abuse that kind of repeats itself from the previous to the new generations. And it can become so normalized that little is done to stop the cycle, right? So grandpa does it to mom, mom does it to son, son does it to his kid, you know, on and on. Um, And so, you know, sexual abuse and assault is, is so much about power and control. And so for a child who has had his power and control stripped away from him during kind of his own abuse sometimes you know the only thing he can think of to take that power back is by doing the same to a younger child so it again as we see with most sexual assault I mean there is a sexual drive but power seems to be the the main goal right especially for children whose you know their brains have not developed in that way to be seeking like sexual stimulation or understand sexual relationships in that way. And I apologize. I don't have the exact ages of um, when this was happening, but um, they were kids. So in August of 1969, Patricia died from respiratory illness complications. So things got a lot of worse. At some point, Patricia and her kids had lived separately from Anthony, but now they all moved um, in together. Uh, Patricia eventually had seven children before she passed away. So Claudia now started to get violent with the children. She would beat them for everything. Quote, when a perceived infraction took place and it seemed to happen almost every other day, Claudia would have the accused stripped off all of his or her clothes. Then she would tie the child to the banister at the foot of the stairs and beat him or her with an extension cord or something else that gave a whip-like sound. It was sadistic and ritualistic. Now that was an author quote. All the children would watch each other as they were stripped and beaten. Anthony said that the as the girls got older and started to go through puberty, he would devise ways to get them in trouble, like stealing some of his mom's special food and blaming it on the girls just so he could watch them be stripped and beaten. Okay, Courtney, this sounds like a breeding ground for all things nefarious. What do you think? It is certainly a breeding ground for complex trauma. You know, physical abuse is already extremely demeaning. 
But making a child strip and be beaten while naked is strictly just to increase the humiliation. It is cruel and sadistic. And for Anthony and the other children who witnessed and experienced it, it served to normalize violence as a response to anger and to connect violence with sex. You know, to me, there's a very clear connection between Anthony's experiencing this abuse as a child and the things that he will go on to do as an adult. Right, and the extension cord that his mother uses will come into play for his use down the road. Right. Yeah. When Anthony was 13, he started to rape his niece, who was 12. Her name was Leona, and she said it would happen almost daily. If she refused, he would beat her. Her sisters were also raped by the other nephews in the house, named Owen and Robin. They were afraid to tell Claudia because of the beatings she would inflict. She did not believe the girls when they plucked up the courage to tell her about what was going on. Predictably, the girls began to run away. One of the girls, Ramona, got caught running away and was sent to Metzenbaum Children's Center, which was a shelter for runaway youths. Leona, one of the others, snuck into the facility to join her sister and stayed for two months before they knew she was there, and then they sent her back to the house of hell. Desperately, Leona set fire to some clothes inside the house. Because of her arson, she was sent to Metzenbaum. She was eventually transferred to Sagamore Hills Children's Psychiatric Hospital, where someone did finally believe her, and she never had to go back to that house. Courtney? I mean, clearly we are seeing the impact of generational trauma going on here, and it is truly just awful. You know, Leona was clearly seeking help, and when it was denied, she did what she had to do to escape. You know, and this type of behavior is unfortunately common with abuse victims, where they feel like they have to do something that gets them removed from the home for another reason. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes it is doing something that winds them up in like the legal system or something like that um, because they see it as the only way to get out. Yeah, I mean, I can I can understand how she, why she would do what she did. Absolutely. I mean, she didn't light the fire to kill herself. She lit the fire to get in trouble. <laughs> right, so she you could know. go to this place where uh-huh. her sister was safe. Right. You know, so I'm glad she finally got the help that she needed. Yeah. So Anthony apparently really liked school until he hit high school. He wasn't very good at it, but he enjoyed learning and he liked doing sports. He also learned how to play chess and was actually pretty good at it. He loved music and he played the cello in middle school. He was quiet and nice and everyone said that he was polite and a little bit shy. In high school, he endured teasing and was made fun of because he couldn't talk to girls. He eventually quit school in 1976. Soon after he stopped going to Shaw High School, he did get a girlfriend. Her name was Twyla Austin. During this time, East Cleveland uh, East Cleveland was falling into an impoverished state. The town that once had 40,000 in residence was losing most of its populations with any means of making a good living, and they are just leaving behind poor and primarily black residents. Per Anthony's girlfriend, Twyla, quote, it was terrible, just terrible. Drugs were ruining the community, and the main front runner was crack. By 1977, Anthony was starting to rack up a police record. He was arrested for robbery, assault, including domestic violence, and drunken disorderly, amongst other transgressions. He paid a fine and served 30 days for the domestic charge, but most of the charges were dropped. The 17-year-old Sowell realized he needed to do something with his life. He was a high school dropout without any real skills in the working world, so he decided to go into the military. He ended up enlisting with the Marines after his mom signed the paperwork, since he was technically underage, and headed off to basic training. A month later, Twyla informed him that she was pregnant with his child. 
Anthony was actually really happy with the news. So Julie, his daughter, would be born August of 1978. Anthony would do well in basic training, finishing first in his class of 40. He acquired many fighting and self-defense skills in the Marines. When he graduated from basic, he became an electrician at Camp Lejeune after, and he got his GED first. Um, he served a year overseas in Japan where he met Kim Lawson, and she was an officer in the armed forces. They got married in 1981, so I guess Twyla was history at some point. No. The marriage would last only a year. I think that their careers in the military just afforded them too little time together, and they were always on the move. Eventually, Anthony finished up in the military and went home to East Cleveland. And what he came home to was a complete ghetto of a neighborhood. To deal what you know with what his life had become, and a divorced man at 25, now living in a neighborhood riddled with crime and drugs, he turned to alcohol. Anthony would drink a lot. He would also smoke pot a lot, and occasionally imbibe in cocaine, but he did not do crack. He did see all the women in the streets who did do crack, and who would basically do anything for another hit. Anthony continued to have interactions with law enforcement, mostly for assault, domestic violence. Um, uh, he was changed an angry man after he came home. Uh, I did watch a Snapped episode on Anthony, and his sister, Twyla, was interviewed, and she said that when he came from home from the Marines, he was definitely different. Not sure what happened over there, but... Okay. Um, just to throw that out there. Courtney hadn't watched it yet, but... He had some stuff at, okay, so I apologize. That was just a random thought that came in. So let's see. One evening in the summer of 1989, Anthony met Melvette Stockwell while walking down the street. Melvette was agitated because she was worried her drug dealer boyfriend was getting busted by the police. Anthony asked her to come hang out with him. He had some stuff at his house and they could party. At the time, Anthony's extended family occupied the rooms and floors downstairs, and he had his own space on the third floor. So that's where he directed Melvette to go. She headed up the stairs and was, you know, put at ease because there were several children running around. There was food cooking and familial noises coming from all over the massive house. But as soon as they got upstairs, Anthony slammed the door shut behind them and rigged it to be locked and nearly impossible to open. He then pulled out a huge knife and forced Melvette to do unspeakable acts with him for the next 12 hours he raped and beat her torturing her while his family was down below none the wiser when he wanted to take a nap he would bind her hands and put a towel in her mouth he would wake her up then choke her till she nearly, nearly passed out um you know he would just keep repeating the cycle Melvette would later say that she was praying the whole time, you know, out loud, to which he responded, quote, you might as well say your prayers because I'm going to kill you. I'm going to beat you and then I'm going to kill you. But I'm going to sleep first because I'm too tired to kill you right now. And he then fell asleep. So, Courtney, a couple things. What do you think happened to make Anthony make this jump from, you know, domestic violence and minor assault to full-on rape and kidnapping? I know it's somewhat speculative, but knowing what we know, do you think maybe something happened to him while he was in the military? Any diagnosis you want to explore? Also, how terrifying must this have been for Melvette? You know, hours of rape and torture only be told that you'll be killed, you know, after you get some sleep. All right. So this has a lot of layers. Um, you know, we can't know exactly what Anthony experienced while he was in the military, but it's not abnormal for friends and family of returning veterans to report a change in them. You know, whether something happened to increase his anger or not, you know, Anthony already had a significant history of sexual abuse and physical abuse 
you know, from his childhood, both as a victim and a perpetrator. You know, one, one thought that I have is that his past trauma memories were triggered by moving back into his childhood home and being around his family again. You know, if he was having intrusive memories and being constantly reminded of what he went through, you know, plus having intense anger, it would not be a huge leap to acting on any sexually violent urges that he may have been having. You know, especially if we throw in, you know, decreased inhibitions related to drug and alcohol use. Diagnosis-wise, I would definitely be considering PTSD and, you know, polysubstance abuse. It kind of feels unclear to me about, at this point, you know, antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy. You know, his behaviors are very reprehensible and definitely fit into the pattern of what we would see um, for someone with one of these diagnoses. Um, But what's missing are reports about Anthony, like, lacking empathy and being glib and superficial and some of those other kind of softer personality attributes associated with, like, antisocial personality disorder. And as for Melvette, I cannot begin to fathom how terrifying that night must have been for her. You know, the way to survive through the rape and the torture that she suffered was to just hold on to hope that at some point it would end and she would eventually be freed. Well, Courtney Milvet is an amazing woman. While he was asleep, she rolled off the bed and fell to the floor in a heap. She crawled over to the window, hands behind her back, and opened the window pane with her head. She was able to open it just 18 inches, but that was enough for her to slide her battered body through. So now she's on the roof of the third floor house, bloody and beaten, hands bound, mouth gagged, and below she saw two women on the sidewalk. Um, Quote, they thought I was playing, and they waved at first. I was young looking, and they thought I was one of the kids there. But I turned around and showed them my hands were bound. He had tied them with a necktie. They saw that I was tied up, and I heard one of them say, Oh my God, call the police. Minutes later, a slew of fire trucks, police cars, and ambulances surrounded the Sowell home. Melvette was lying on the roof, and she was saved. She was unable to speak. She was so traumatized that even though all these people were there to rescue her, she was positive if she made any noise or screamed, Anthony would come and finish the job. What, uh, what, what do you think she's experiencing, Courtney? Well, Melvette Melvette was experiencing an acute trauma response. You know, when a person is in a life or death situation, the body and brain automatically responds in ways designed to keep them alive. So the sympathetic nervous system is activated, which releases hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, which prepare the body for that fight-flight response. Now, when someone has been experiencing severe trauma for a prolonged period, these hormones can completely overwhelm the system, leading the body and the brain essentially to shut down. Um, This sometimes includes dissociation, which is when a person's brain essentially blocks out and disconnects from reality as a way of protecting the person from further pain. So I would guess, based on the description, that Melvette was at sort of this point where she was essentially in shock and had been so overwhelmed by by the trauma that she was essentially in shutdown mode. She probably went through like every emotion there was and like on the extreme level. Right, exactly. In the past 12 hours. Right. She was probably exhausted. Absolutely. Well, Anthony was arrested and Melvette was taken to the nearby hospital. 
Anthony did make bond, but was indicted in fall of 1989. He no-showed for his court date. He would not be found for seven months when another crime he committed got him arrested. That arrest was due to him assaulting a 31-year-old pregnant woman with whom he was partying. He told her, quote, she was his bitch and she had better learn to like it. She was, uh, she was to reply to all his demands with, quote, yes, sir, I like it. He raped and sodomized her as well as choked her. He went to sleep and she escaped and brought the police back to where they were and they arrested him. The women who turned him in ran off, so the charges, those charges were not pressed. However, they were able to bring him in on the Melvet rape charge for, you know, one he didn't appear for. And his trial started. Anthony claimed to be indignant, indigent, indigent. Indigent. Yes. Yes, and was able to plead his charge down to attempted rape, to which he pled guilty. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison. So I don't really understand how stating that he was indigent can alter degree of charges. I'm glad he got a stiff sentence, but I don't understand how that charge was changed. What do you think, Courtney? Is it another, quote, the victim is not a credible witness because they're a drug addict type of situation? So after looking it up, um, pleading indigent essentially means that a person says they can't afford their own lawyer and need a public defender. Um, So because of the high volume of cases handled by public defenders and overcrowding in the court system, the public defenders will often try to negotiate a deal with the prosecution to avoid having to spend the time and money on a trial. Um, So with a plea deal, charges are often reduced in order to guarantee a guilty plea and jail time. Um, so for once, I don't think this was a situation of blaming the victim, mm-hmm. but it okay. usually is. Well, regardless, um, he did get 15 years. Yes, he so, did. So, um, the judge must have, just, I think probably gave him like the maximum that he could for that. But so that is where I'm going to stop today. Yes. Um, and I think this is going to be a three-part case. So sorry, you guys, if uh, you don't like them that long. But that's this this case goes on and on and on. And since I had never heard of it, <laughs> I had a lot of digging and research to do. Yeah. Um, so therefore, it is Courtney for social media. Ah, it's my turn. Okay. So if you want to give us comments about the length of, you know, our cases and how many episodes you like to hear – you can reach out to us by email at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our Instagram at addictedtompodcast. Or you can look us up, comment, like, follow, subscribe, review, all of those things on our Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube at Addicted to Murder Podcast. Yes, and um, if you do like us, please tell your friends so that they'll check us out too. Yes, please. Yes. Okay, well, um, we will pick up on part two next week. So see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.